up, everybody? Welcome back to the Vast Podcast. Jake here, and I am with my co-host, the one and only David Campbell. David, how are you doing? Good, thank you. Good to be back with you. Hope England is treating you well. England is treating me just fine, <laughs> apart from the weather, where I would rather be in California. <laughs> That's just becoming the bit at the start of every podcast is your, I know. your desire I know. to be in California. <laughs> Um, well, uh, today I want to talk about love, um, and, uh, a bit about the tautology that has, um, embedded itself in our modern day culture. Love is love. Um, and holding that up to a, uh, biblical worldview and ethic. Um, and what made me start thinking about this as I was reading through your new book, Exodus, and uh, which is great. And you're talking all about freedom. And in one of your chapters, you get to uh, a place where you're talking about biblical freedom in connection to love and how that flies in the face of uh, our modern understanding of what love is um, today outside the church, but also it seems uh, in the more progressive end of theology uh, inside the church as well. Um and maybe even in some conservative circles as well. Uh, I guess it just depends on how thorough people are when they're uh, defining and understanding what we mean by terms like love. So um, any opening remarks on that? Yeah, we have to define what we mean. Words in themselves have no meaning outside of context and definition. Uh, so, you know, for instance, you're, Love is love. Well, that doesn't mean anything right. at all. The Bible presents a, a well-defined view of love, understanding of love. Uh, and it turns out it is related to freedom, as I point out in my book, because the book's about freedom. Uh, but again, freedom is another one of those words that is meaningless. Right. Uh, outside of, uh, I mean, the Nazis put up the phrase work. Uh, means freedom or work brings freedom uh, outside of Auschwitz, I think it was. So, you know, freedom is meaningless outside of context. Love is meaningless as a word outside of context. You know what's so ironic is uh, I read a um, a small little book uh, recently in this, this new series that came out. Um, it's Reformed theologians writing on great thinkers over – uh, over time, one of the thinkers that the uh, a book gets written on is on Jacques Derrida, who's the father of deconstruction. And what's ironic to me is that the real heart of deconstruction was in like it, it, the only way that you can understand words is by looking at them in contrast to the opposite thing of the word that you're talking about. And it's very ironic to me that the way that we're defining love is the opposite of what uh, deconstruction is really about. Uh, when it comes to how we understand uh, what words are and what words mean. Um, and love is love is a great example of that. It's just such a, a senseless, meaningless statement. It literally means nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's our job, you know, in as Christians uh, and as Christian leaders, our job is to teach a biblical view because if you don't have a biblical view, then it's just uh, you can make up whatever you want. Uh, but we believe that there's a source of authority for what we believe, and that's found in the Bible. And so it's our job to, and, and you know, I mean, it's great when we accept that and we have churches that accept that. That's really important. But above and beyond that, even if we have churches that accept the authority of Scripture, if we don't preach and teach what the scripture means accurately, mm -hmm. then how much have we accomplished? You know, people believe in the Bible, but if they don't really understand what the Bible uh, means, then where are we at? You talk, know, just, talk about that a little bit, right? Because the common uh, pushback that gets thrown up against that is like, well, what makes you so confident that you know what the Bible means? Like, why is your interpretation of a passage more reliable than my interpretation of a passage? Um, can right, we know but that's a, with that's any a level question. of confidence what the Bible says? Absolutely. That's a question that's asked by people that haven't studied the Bible. Well, what uh, happens if they have studied the Bible? Let, let, have let, this 
let, let's not make a totally sweeping generalization because some of them study the Bible. Well, at, le- at the very least, they read it. People, people that make, uh, okay, people that make comments such as the one you just cited, which is, you know, you can't really be confident about anything the Bible teaches. Really, the issue is there's one group of people that uh, accept the authority of Scripture and are pretty well agreed on what the Bible teaches um, with a few minor distinctions right. or peripheral distinctions. The other is a group of people who don't actually accept the authority of the Bible uh, or uh, don't maybe even properly understand what the Bible teaches at all. And they're the kind of people that say, well, you can't have confidence. You can't really know. It teaches all sorts of things. I mean, if you look at any doctrinal statement from any um, network of churches or den- church denomination or, or whatever, uh, and you'll find there, you could sign off to just about all of them. The Catholics have two sources of authority, one of which is the Bible and one of which is church tradition. It's not because they interpret the Bible differently. It's because they've set up a second source of authority, which is church or church tradition. Mm -hmm. And then they, that gives them the liberty to interpret the Bible through that tradition. Mm -hmm. Um, But for those that accept the Bible as authoritative, there's, you know, there's very little um, argument over any of the main things that the Bible teaches. Mm -hmm. So I don't accept the idea that, we don't really know what the Bible teaches. Mm-hmm. It could teach anything. And uh, everybody has has their own interpretation. I don't I think that's ridiculous. There is, in fact, an interpretation of a text. There is a a there might be many applications, but there is one interpretation. There is something that the author meant. Yeah, to say. And, 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 you know, uh, for the most part, on every major point of doctrine, the church has, has been agreed. Uh, on for over one and a half thousand years. Mm-hmm. The, in the first several centuries, the early Christian leaders hammered out agreement on what was their biblical understanding of um, the person of Christ, uh, the divinity of Christ, his humanity, um, the nature and understanding and doctrine of the Trinity, and these kind of things. Um, uh, the nature of justification by faith, all these things and many others were hammered out in the context of an environment where um, there was a conflict between uh, the pagan culture, which still embraced elements of a lot of elements of Greek philosophy and biblical truth. And it was a battle within the church for them to extricate themselves from what the pagan Greek philosophers taught, uh, and some of how that seeped into religious viewpoints of the day, such as what's called Gnosticism, um, and to develop a, a full and rich understanding from of what the Bible actually teaches about all the important aspects of the Christian faith. And those early church leaders, uh, you know, sometimes we think that we're a lot smarter than them. I'm not really sure about that at all mm-hmm. because they accomplished through the early church councils at places like Chalcedon and Nicaea and Constantinople and, and so on. They, they uh, established an extraordinary degree of understanding and of unity, which has been accepted ever since by uh, the church around the world. Um, so, uh, I, I think we can have confidence. I think the argument today and for the last couple hundred years has been between people who accept biblical authority and people who don't. That's the battleground. Right. And it's the people who don't accept biblical authority that tend to have un- difficulty in understanding what the Bible says and uh, tend to confuse issues. Uh, or sometimes they do understand what it says, but they don't agree with it. Right. Yeah, and they try to find a way out. And I guess even beyond like major talking points of doctrine throughout church history, I guess what I'm getting at is we can come to a passage in the Bible and study it and understand its context uh, 
and be able to pull from that what the person was saying to the people they were talking to. That is not an impossible task. No, not at all. Absolutely not. My, uh, you know, my dad was saved in the Plymouth Brethren through street evangelists who came and preached to the tenement buildings, such as the one in which he lived. Um, and he listened to them Saturday by Saturday, several floors up, preaching to the bare walls and windows of the tenements. And one day he came down and gave his life to Christ. And uh, I remember him telling me, um, the, the people in the, in the Brethren Assembly were largely illiterate when they came to Christ. Glasgow was one of the poorest cities in the Western world. Um, and they taught themselves to read because when they became Christians, they wanted to be able to read the Bible. And in the course of time, um, the Brethren turned out many extraordinary Bible teachers. I mean, I disagree with their eschatology, but on other matters, they were quite profound. Mm -hmm. And then look at Watchman Nee, who was sitting in a Chinese prison, uh, writing profound books with an extraordinary insight into the scriptures um, without ever having gone through, you know, universities and seminaries and so on. So I think, I think that if we love the Lord and we apply ourselves to study the scriptures, and um, the truth should the truth is the Bible contains the most profound truth, mm-hmm. but and something else my dad taught me that it should be understandable to the average person. Mm-hmm. And so I've dedicated my life as best I can to trying to teach profound biblical truth to the at the level of the average person can understand it. Mm-hmm. And I believe that's entirely possible. I've preached to congregations where you could shoot a cannon off without hitting anyone that had ever been to college mm-hmm. um, and people get it, mm-hmm. you know, conversely, you, you can, you can try to explain the Bible to people who have a string of degrees behind their names, but their heart hearts aren't right with God and they can't get anything at all, mm-hmm. which illustrates the truth uh, that John Calvin said, said it, you know, about 400 or so years ago, um, you can't understand the Bible without a revelation of the Holy Spirit. So we do believe that the Holy Spirit, and this is the supernatural part of it, gives us understanding of the Word of God. So when I come, you know, or when I came, for instance, and preach at your church, then I'm relying on, I was then relying on the Holy Spirit to open the hearts of the people that were listening to me at C3LA, and hopefully they got something out of it, not just because I was you know, hopefully, again, accurately teaching the word of God, but because the Holy Spirit was moving on their hearts to open the scriptures. And that's the mystery part of it. You know, that's the that's the part beyond the purely rational. That's why when we're preaching, we're not giving academic lectures. We're doing something more than that because we're aiming not just at imparting information, but at 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 being the transmitters of revelation that changes people's lives and for that we need obviously the help of the holy spirit one of the things that um is heavily contested when it comes to interpretation is um, what the bible means when it talks about uh sex and sexuality and that is the the love is love uh conversation so let's dive into that you uh make a remark in uh chapter six of your book i want to read it Um, You say a vague and general command to love is both meaningless and dangerous. It allows us, not God, to judge what love looks like. It causes love to degenerate into undefined sentimental and hypocritical generalities. It is the love of Hollywood or pagan culture or even the love of a sentimental greeting card. It is dangerous because it causes people who practice this kind of love to live in a deception that they are good people and will find their own way to heaven, even while they walk through life in a self-centered self-righteous, self-deluded haze. So there's the critique leveled against the culture. Mm. Um, So obviously you're setting up the modern day culture's understanding of love up against the biblical understanding of love. Talk a little bit about the differences between those two. Well, there's a number of differences. I mean, you know, um, when I visited you, we took a quick tour through Hollywood uh, and uh, Hollywood is, 
you know, as a word epitomizes it, it, it represents uh, a certain um, portrayal, I suppose, of love, which is generally associated with, you know, emotional romance or sexuality of some sort. Uh, and of course, as we know that, you know, that most of the actors in those movies have been divorced three or four or five times. And there's a court case going on at the moment that everybody in the Western world seems to be watching <laughs> along those lines. And, uh, you know, in other words, it doesn't really seem to work out in the lives of the actors and or in the culture. So I sort of look at it and I think, well, if the people that are churning all this stuff out live dysfunctional lives and are trying to portray, you know, a way of living that everybody is going to enjoy and live happily in and, and so on, then something there's a disconnect in all of this. But I think there's, you know, in the society in which we live, uh, I mean, we are inherently fallen, self-centered people. That's our natural human nature. Mm -hmm. um, and so love is going to be uh, conditional and it's going to have, you know, um, things attached to it. Uh, when I love someone, I am doing so uh, in order to get something back out of the relationship. And if I'm a fallen human being, then chances are what I want to get back out of the relationship, which I would call a relationship of love, um, is more than I put into it. So because if that's not the case, then I am actually giving sacrificially. And that's against my fallen human nature. I'm not saying that there's no such thing as sacrificial love um, outside of you know, the, the church of Jesus Christ or people right. who are following Jesus. I'm not saying that because man, mankind, human, humankind was, was created in the image of God. Um, and even though it's a very messed up image, it still is the image of God. Mm -hmm. And that image comes through from time to time in, uh, heroic actions of self-sacrifice. I'm just saying though, that's not the generality, you know, right. of life in the office or life in the factory or life at school or college in the or in the community or whatever, it's generally, you know, I'm in it for what I can get out of it. And, or at the least, if I'm going to put something in, I want a return of my investment. Mm -hmm. And so um, my love is conditional. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, when it comes to marriage and, or let's say not even necessarily marriage, but a committed partnership or sexual relationship, then uh, in generally, uh, you can kind of compare it to a situation where um, both partners bring a straw into the relationship and they proceed to stick their straw in the cup of, the, of their partner. And when they have drunk each other dry and there's nothing left, then the relationship ends. Mm -hmm. and. I, what I'm saying is that the Bible teaches a different kind of love where I don't bring a straw into the relationship. I bring my cup and pour it willingly into yours mm -hmm. and you're pouring it willingly into mine. And then there's something wonderful and supernatural happens in, the, in that God keeps filling both of our cups with his love mm -hmm. as we're handing that love on to other people. Mm -hmm. And so we become re uh, not sort of reservoirs, uh, but we become conduits mm -hmm. of the love of God. So that's a great definition of, of biblical love. Why can I not experience that kind of love in the context of my choosing? Why, why can't that happen between two men or two women? Or for that matter, three or more people in a relationship? Right. And, you know, you pointed out an interesting problem, which is that when you move outside of biblical categories, mm -hmm. where do you end? Mm -hmm. uh, and you could have taken it a step further into what traditionally has been called pedophilia, mm -hmm. uh, you know, is now called, I don't know, men loving boys or Minor something like attracted that. persons. That's it. And so 
uh, it's only a matter of time before that domino falls as well. Uh, and so when you start to remove biblical boundaries, uh, you, you know, you don't know where you are going to wind up, but it's not going to be in a good place. Mm -hmm. So, uh, it, it is totally countercultural for us to say that, you know, a sexual relationship between two men and two women or be, you know, a, um, sort of a partnership between, you know, polyamory between three or four or five people or between an adult, a sexual relationship between an adult and a child. It's all those things uh, we say are wrong. Uh, that's not how God designed it to happen. And of course, that's un unpopular in today's culture. That's even before you get into the whole trans issue and that sort of thing. Um, but uh, we as Christians accept that God has given a definition. And it goes back to the story of the garden where uh, Adam wanted to eat of the fruit. Uh, he wanted to uh, eat of the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge, and he wanted to be able to define knowledge by his own standards. So he didn't like the idea that God was the only one who was defining what was true and what was false, what was right and what was wrong. Mm -hmm. Adam wanted to, you know, he gave into the temptation of the serpent. You know, why don't you establish your own boundaries? Why don't you have your own tree? Why don't you, you know, and so on. And so when he took that step, uh, humanity became the arbiter or judge or definer of what is good and what is evil. So we moved away from allowing God to be the judge of that to us being the judge of that. The only problem is in a selfish world, um, what inevitably happens is that might is right. And those who have more power will take advantage of those who have less power. Uh, so, you know, that would be um, uh, pedophilia, for instance, uh, uh, or other abusive relationships for that matter. It could often has happened with the way that men treat women. Mm -hmm. um, we know that, sadly, in the course of history. Um, and so that's because we have chosen to define, in this case, love uh, in the way that we want to define it, not in the way that God has defined it. Now, I always say that Christianity is at its strongest when it is countercultural. And we're moving into a world where Christianity is profoundly countercultural, as it was in the Roman Empire. Uh, and which had, you know, all those things that ex that are very popular today, uh, you know, um, homosexual conduct or, uh, uh, you know, pedophilia, uh, all this kind of thing was, you know, a standard fare uh, in ancient Greece and, and in in the Roman Empire, because Greece tended to set the standard from well before the time of Christ. You can read Plato's, you know, uh, um, dialogues and uh, Socrates is in there and all these is incredibly profound philosophy going on. At the same time, it's quite evident in the dialogue that there are, you know, that the men in the dialogue are having sex with boys and that but then they don't see anything wrong with that at all. Yeah. That was just part of the culture. Um, so we come along as Christians and, and say, same way in the Roman Empire, they just put babies out to die. It was Christians who rescued them. Mm -hmm. um, and so as Christians, we have a different perspective. It may not be popular, but we're not called to be popular. We have to take a stand on what we believe. No, I'll, I'll just, I mean, <clears throat> I'll finish the, this whole diatribe with one really important point, which is that we are called to love and place as much value on, uh, you know, people who are practicing homosexuals or, uh, for that matter, uh, you know, um, practicing pedophilia or whatever, um, or people, women who've had an abortion or whatever, are as, just as much value in the love of God, we're called to love those people. We're called to place value on them 
regardless of the fact that we believe their conduct is wrong. So the church needs to be, a, you know, it's wrong for us as Christians to give out a message of hate or to give out the message we don't love those people. We, you know, what we're saying is you're, we, we have compassion for you. We want to rescue you from the consequences of actions which actually are going to harm you, but we love you and you're welcome in our midst. We have to find a way of loving and welcoming people regardless of where they're coming from or else we turn into Pharisees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And that's a, uh, I guess that's the, the the messy process of Christianity and discipleship, right? It is very messy, but where there's no oxen in the stall, there's no mess. Mm-hmm. So bring on the oxen. And I, I mean, look at Corinth at the church there. It had every kind of uh, deviancy going on, all sorts of stuff and garbage. And Paul lists all this thing and he says, such were some of you, mm-hmm. you know, which I guess that brings in the the nuance, though, of like what it means to love, because from a biblical understanding, love is not to uh, tolerate. Love is not to accept uh, or I guess affirm is um, is the better word, uh, everything that a person desires to do. And so I think that 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 conversation is two sided, right? Because in my experience, um, I've had many conversations on the subject of, of love and in sexual relationships and have brought in the biblical ethic. And sometimes it is responded to with humility. Um, but other times it's, it's responded to with, uh, pride and it's, it's not a message that wants to be heard. Um, and certainly not a path that wants to be walked. Um, and so I don't, as somebody who is a, 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 a practicing pastor and who's in the midst of these conversations. And I know that you, you are and, and have been for many, many years. Um, just because our heart and our attitude towards it can be pure doesn't mean that it always has or will go well. Can you tease out what you mean by that? Well, when you have a, a conversation with somebody about uh, a biblical sex ethic and they don't want to live according to a biblical sex ethic or have not been, Sometimes there is humility uh, and a positive response, repentance uh, to that. And a lot of times there's also not. And so I, I guess what I'm trying to say is we are not unloving for being truthful. That, that's our, our point is that what we're trying to say is. Like if somebody that, comes into our church and they're practicing pedophilia, I, my love for them is not going to is is going to include a conversation around how destructive and sinful pedophilia is. Right. So we we tell people we love you, um, but the the you're engaged in destructive, um, you know, co- uh, practices, conduct, and so on. That is not helping you. I mean, it's not helping other people around you either. But it's not helping you. Um, because what we really believe is that if we follow a biblical ethic, um, it doesn't matter whether it's how you deal with your finances or how you deal with sexuality. If you follow a biblical ethic, it will go well for you. You know, that's I mean, it doesn't mean that everything's perfect in your life, but it, it means that, the, you know, the closer you get to following God's pattern, um, that's how he designed us to live and in his image and life works better and your life will work better and my life will work better when we the closer we live to that ethic mm-hmm. and i guess so, the, the countercultural aspect of christianity is that in, in in previous decades we had it easier because we could we could point to law uh because certain activities were were not legal like I was at Obergefell, was that 2015 when gay marriage got legalized in um, uh, in uh, America? <clears throat> and it's I don't think we can underestimate the impact of of changes in law and how that that tends to have a uh, an impact on people's thinking in regards to what is and what is not right and wrong. Um, and to your point, Christians are countercultural that no matter what's going on in uh, uh, in a culture as it regards what is accepted and legal, 
that that is not the barometer for Christians. Our barometer is is Bible, and we're trying to live according to a a different way um, than the ideals of the world. Yeah, and I think that let's look at the issue of the family. I think we would all agree whether you know, and whether we're Christians or not, we would all agree that there's a crisis in the family, and that there's been um, you know a massive weakening of the family structure. Mm-hmm in recent decades and that this is a negative thing mm-hmm. uh and uh in particular uh where fathers are absent that this has very negative consequences for the family and certainly for boys and i i i think you know most sociologists even if they're absolutely not christians would agree with that so what we're really saying is okay well that's really what the Bible teaches. It's what we're really saying is, or at least what's really happening is that our society has moved away from a biblical view of the family. Because where did that view of the family come from? Well, it came from Genesis. the biblical foundation, from the days when our culture was built more on biblical roots. Um, and the more we moved have moved away from that, the more we see fragmentation, family breakdown, and so on, because the structure of the family is designed uh, to uh, promote a genuine love whereby the parents love the children sacrificially and raise the children in the right environment with the right boundaries and so on. Um, And don't just, you know, throw them away or disregard them or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and we've moved away from that because we moved away from the biblical model of the family because we moved away from the biblical understanding of love. And we, the direction we've moved in is basically self-centeredness. We've moved away from a place where our freedom is limited and restricted in the, so that our conduct is to be directed to the word, word the welfare of others. We've moved to a place where we think our freedom is unrestricted. And what that really means is it promotes love of myself and what I want to do, regardless of anybody else. And you get the same thing. This is the essence of postmodernism where, you know, uh, you do you. And uh, in a society where everybody, where everybody follows the you do you model will fragment into total chaos and nihilism and the only people that will win are the people who have the power. And, of course, that's what postmodernism claims to want to be able to destroy, exactly. that it actually creates the monster, exactly. that it, that it um, claims to be, to be trying to destroy. Exactly. Because the, the postmodern ideal is that everything is about power. Even claims to truth are nothing more at their heart than just grabs at power. And the irony is that uh, it creates a society of victimhood because because group A is oppressed by group B in regards to group B's uh, values and group B's claims to truth. That's just a that's just a power play over group A. And so what happens is that victimhood becomes another means to gain power because the most victimized person is the one who gets rewarded the most amount of power in the society in a postmodern culture. Um, and it's a, a pretty crazy cycle. Well, it divides down uh, people into smaller and smaller and smaller groups of, <clears throat> you know, where the people who are supposedly the most oppressed are given the most power. Um, but what it really does is it sets everybody against everybody else exactly in a mad grab Mm -hmm. for power and rights and we use terminology to try and cover that like in the culture they'll say things like platforming this person or centering this person and decentering that person or deplatforming that person and it's deeply and it's deeply hypocritical because for instance right today in the front page news in in britain where i am at the moment is um the church of england refuses ordination to uh, a black, uh, a young black guy, mm-hmm. uh, because the young black guy says, "I don't believe that Great Britain is a discriminatory society." 
fundamentally. He says, I don't believe in that. So the white lady bishop who is over him takes him by the hand, apparently literally, and says, you just don't understand Mm -hmm. that she's talking to a black man. Mm -hmm. You don't understand that Britain is actually very racially discriminatory. Mm -hmm. And until you agree with that, Mm -hmm. we won't ordain you. Well, what kind of ludicrous nonsense Mm -hmm. or what kind of world dystopian Mm -hmm. world are we in? What kind of weird, uh, you know, perverted situation are we in? Mm -hmm. Um, I thought that um, this postmodernism, postmodernist ethos, which this uh, female bishop is obviously trying to promote. I thought that it's supposed to give black people more power. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, she's accusing him of being, I guess, white on the inside or something. And I think it's just it's just absolutely absurd. I think, you the know, technical term that they would use is that someone like that has, quote, internalized their oppression, unquote. Yep. And really, uh, it's just they invent ways of discrediting anyone that d- disagrees with them because it is an ideology. Absolutely. Yes. And it's a. It's a pagan, non-Christian ideology. It, it is a religion. It is a pursuit of power. Postmodernism ultimately is the pursuit of personal power, mm-hmm. uh, which is why it's in the same line of lineage as Nietzsche and Hitler uh, in might versus right and the pursuit of power and strength. And, um, and I'm not saying in that as I don't want any, anybody to sue you or me. I'm not saying that all <laughs> postmodernists are Nazis or something like that. I'm just saying it's in the same line of philosophical thinking. Mm-hmm. And uh, whereas Christianity is not the pursuit of power, it's the pursuit of service mm-hmm. of others and of genuine love and of the laying down our lives uh, in on the model of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And many of us who bear the name Christian have failed in that endeavor. There's no doubt about Absolute, that. A- absolutely. And but our ideal, been... what we're aiming for, it 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 preaches something different than our failure. So that if we were to live up to our, our theology, we would experience something beautiful and life-giving that causes human flourishing. Whereas the difference is that the, the postmodern theology when when people are living according to that mindset, that worldview, and they get what they get, they are not operating in discord to what they believe. They are operating in accordance with what they believe, and they are getting the fruit of that tree. Whereas when Christianity, uh, when Christians fail to live up to what Christianity is, there is a discord between the theology and the behavior. And so our role, our opportunity, our call from God is to repent of those dead works and to come back into alignment with the truth that God gives us so that we may experience uh, the life that he desires for us. Absolutely. Keep preaching. <laughs> let's, let's, um, let's begin to wrap it up with uh, uh, this idea that uh, you have the law in the Old Testament, and then you have uh, the law of Christ, as Paul talks about in Galatians, and this confusion around, well, Christ, you know, didn't he, like, isn't he the end of the law? Doesn't that mean that, because it's hard to argue with Leviticus when it talks about its command uh, uh, about uh, men not lying with men. Um, but hasn't hasn't Jesus changed all that so that now, you know, like, uh, all of that is, is fluid. And, and as long as I'm just, I'm loving and, and I'm up trying to uphold these values of sacrificial and, and, and all that, like speak into that, because that's the, the, the common kind of talking points, um, around this. Well, yeah. I mean, I wrote a 600 page PhD thesis on that topic. So, uh, it, it ain't going to be, uh, decided in a brief wrap up, but let me just say this. Well, that, we got about uh, another 10 minutes or so. Okay. <laughs> Jesus um, said, I have not come to abolish the law. I have not come to abolish the law, Matthew 5, 17, but to fulfill it. And so my uh, understanding of Jesus' teaching, as well as the teaching of the rest of the New Testament, is that, uh, including the book of Hebrews, is that uh, we have... The, the sacrifice of Christ fulfills the ceremony as, ceremonial aspect of the law, which is um, the, the ritual, the dietary, that sort of requirement, mm-hmm. the animal sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice of Christ and Calvary 
um, fulfills that. It doesn't. It doesn't negate it in the sense that it doesn't sort of say, "Well, that was something ridiculous that should never have happened." What it says is that was a prophetic foreshadowing of the real thing, right? But um, the moral so aspect of the law. The moral aspect of the law is the rest of it. So when when Jesus, you know, summed up the law. And he quoted Deuteronomy, mm -hmm. you know, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. You should love your neighbor as yourself. The, mm -hmm. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the law was a short form for the law, the prophets and the writings, which was the title the is the title of the Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. So when Jesus talks about the law or Paul talks about the law, like numerous times in Romans, he quotes the law. He's actually quoting the Psalms or other parts of the New Testament or Old Testament, the the law means the Bible as a whole, the Old Testament as a whole. And so um, Jesus didn't bring any new moral ethic. If you look at the fruit of the spirit in Galatians chapter five, love, mm -hmm. joy, peace, long suffering, et cetera. And if you look at the list of things that should be avoided, um, you know, uh, the flesh. Uh, the, the works of the flesh, mm -hmm. the works of the flesh are all the things that are addressed in the Old Testament as being wrong. Mm -hmm. And the fruit of the spirit is all those things are addressed in the Old Testament as being things that God desires. Mm -hmm. So what Jesus did was he didn't bring any, he, Jesus did not actually bring any moral teaching that didn't already exist in the Old Testament. He didn't add to it. What he did was he lived it out and in his life, for the first time, we begin to see what happens when a man obeys the law, because mm -hmm. the law had never been fully obeyed. Mm -hmm. But in Christ, it was. He walked the whole thing out. And so um, love is the fulfillment of the law. And in Romans 13, Paul talks about every one of the commandments of the law. He's thinking about, you know, don't uh, covet your neighbor's property. Don't move your neighbor's boundary stone. Don't use false Waits. Don't um, sleep with your neighbor's wife and these kind of things. Um, he's talking about the moral commandments of the law that love is runs like a golden thread through mm -hmm. every single one of those, those. commandments of the mm -hmm. Old Testament law. The goal is love. And Jesus walked in that in a consummate, complete, perfected sense and showed us what it means and so now Romans 8 verse 4 says that that we can fulfill the law at, at we fulfill the law the righteous requirement of the law by walking in the spirit so whereas the pharisees reduce the law um and the sermon on the mount is a critique of how the pharisees reduce the law to commandments that they could keep such mm -hmm. as tithing this or that mm -hmm. um or uh, you know, not say committing adultery, actually physical adultery. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and, and so they reduced the commandments of the law. They didn't understand the full depth of the commandments of the law. They reduced it to a point where they could say, hey, I've kept that. Mm -hmm. And now I've earned my own righteousness before God. But Jesus taught and Paul expounds on what Jesus taught, mm -hmm. that it doesn't matter what you do in your own strength, you can't possibly fulfill mm -hmm. the law. Mm -hmm. That's what the Sermon of the Mount is all about. You know, if you look at someone, you've committed adultery. You, Yeah, you may not have murdered someone, but if you've held hatred or anger in, in your heart against that person, you still violated the law. You can't do it. What we need is the power of the Spirit. But when the Holy Spirit has come and enables us to produce the fruit, that's why those things in Galatians 5 are the fruit of the Spirit. They're not the fruit of what we've been able to do. It's not, you know, we must never teach in church that you're saved by faith but you're, and grace, but you're sanctified through your own efforts. And sometimes we do teach morality and moralism in the church and say, you've got to do this, and you've got to do that and do this and do that. And no, we have to be energized and filled with the Holy Spirit every new day to, to produce anything in our lives. But the, without the framework of the law that Jesus quoted um, and lived, uh, 
And same goes for Paul. Without that framework, that moral understanding that the Old Testament lays down, then, you know, we can define love any way we want. Right. And so love is the fulfilling of the law. The law of Christ is the Old Testament law as fulfilled by Christ. It's not some new thing that uh, Jesus dreamt up where, well, just love anyone and you and do what you want. Mm -hmm. Because, uh, or just, um, you know, if, um, you define love any way you want, then it means that you can put any definition of love that you care to put on it. Mm -hmm. And um, of course, we know that, that that doesn't work because we're fundamentally fallen, self-centered people. And our love will always be contingent on what we can get back out of it. And it will always tend, we will always tend to give with an expectation of getting our investment back with interest. And, and Jesus said, no, you, and I don't think any of us can walk in the way of the cross. Um, maybe, you know, my closing illustration here would be um, uh, my spiritual father was involved with a pastor called Frantisek in Czechoslovakia before the fall of communism, who is, and his church persecuted, uh, obviously, by the communist authorities who were atheists. And um, the, the pastor um, heard that uh, the Communist Party was building a new headquarters in the city of Bratislava, uh, in what I think is now the I think is now the capital of Slovakia, and um, he went to the head of the Communist Party, whom he, he knew uh, he'd been hauled in, I guess, for interrogation or whatever. He was a prominent Christian leader, so he knew the man, and he said, "Look, I've heard that you're uh, building this, putting this building up." And the, the men of my church, I've got a number of tradesmen, we would like to volunteer our service to help you put this building up. And uh, the Communist Party leader was quite um, taken aback, mm -hmm. but he said, OK. And a, a number of months later, he came back to Pastor Fredishek and he said, you know, uh, your men who volunteered on the weekends have done far more work and to a far higher standard than all the people we hired and paid to work in the week. And um, the man contracted, I believe, cancer and died. And he stipulated that at his funeral, which was attended by the all the leaders of the government of Czechoslovakia, he stipulated that Pastor Frandicek would preach the gospel. He, as far as I know, he died an atheist, but that's what he stipulated. See, that's love. Now, you know, we're running around arguing about whether to wear masks or not, and we want our rights, and no government's <laughs> going to tell us what to do. And look at that. And I'm not, please don't, I'm not trying to get embroiled in that old controversy. Um, but I just think, as Christians, we're called to lay our life down. Uh, however the context demands, I use that story, which I'm abbreviating, but I use that story uh, as an illustration of the fact that Without the Spirit of God, we are not able to love truly, because if you were persecuted, uh, I don't care whether it was a Christian or not, but if you were treated badly by people like that, the last thing that you would do is volunteer your time and effort to, to do something on their behalf. That's not human nature. But God directed him to do that because he felt it was what walking in the way of the cross required in that context and it, and in the end it had a profound impact on that man's life mm -hmm. and i dare to believe that if we as christians live the same way in our own context that it will also have a profound impact mm -hmm. i remember a, a guy i lived with for three years in university who was definitely not a christian and i never thought i had the slightest impact until just before we finished our degrees, he came to me and said, Dave, I, I, I want what you've got, mm. but I'm not willing to pay the price. I, that was just such a sad, sad thing. But at least he saw something in me that in spite of all of his partying and the lifestyle that he lived and whatnot, he saw something that was better, not, not because I was better, but just the spirit of God in me. Mm -hmm. So, um, the law of Christ, the law of love, 
Um, is a, that's a phrase that I think John uses in first John. Is that right? Um, these are in reference to fulfilling the law by the Holy spirit. Um, not a, a yeah. brand bear understanding one, Galatians chapter six, bear, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Mm-hmm. And it's, that's, the law of Christ is the bearing of one another's burdens, mm-hmm. which is what the Old Testament teaches, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so that's what we're to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's Jesus, what love is. It is fulfilling. Bearing one another's burdens is akin to loving your neighbor, which is, as you said, Deuteronomy. And it's it's defined by all those commandments of the Old Testament law, the moral commandments of the Old Testament law. Jesus for the first time lived it out. And then he gave us a spirit to be able to live like that. Because if we, if, if, if we understand freedom to be just a freedom, if we don't put any definition around freedom, we'll give it a definition that benefits ourself. And so what God does for us is he defines freedom in such a way that it becomes the laying down of our lives on behalf of others. Uh, and God promises that that actually is the best way and most, in the end, most fulfilling and beneficial way to live. But it's not at all the way the world understands it. We're running out of time, um, and maybe this is a conversation for next week. Because um, I'd like to drill a little bit deeper into uh, desire. Because these this discussion isn't limited merely to our external activity, but our inner desire. And I've been doing a bit of thinking lately with uh, where, how how deep does our sin nature go? Where, Where does it begin? Because my feeling is that it doesn't just begin at the manifestation of our desires in our actions, but in fact is rooted in our desires themselves. And I think that's a that's a conversation that's happening in Christianity right now is there's nothing. And this is even where things like minor attracted person come from. Right. Like there's nothing inherently wrong with the desire. Um, And right now the world is saying, you know, we need to put some boundaries on the behavior. um, But there's that's probably only a matter of time before those boundaries get pushed further and further out, as history has proven. But even in the church, I think sometimes there's that thought that. Our desire is not inherently sinful. It's only when those desires manifest in our behavior. And I find myself wanting to push back on that line of thought. Um, and so maybe that's, well, that's what for that's a sermon on the Mount that you're it's because your desire is wrong, that your behavior is wrong. Mm-hmm. Let's drill into that more uh, a bit next week. Cause I think that's a, that's a, a big talking point right now. All right. This wraps up our episode today. Thank you guys for tuning in. Thanks, David. You're welcome.